Today's uh, first scripture reading comes from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. James chapter 4, starting verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Nate. Father, as we hear from your word, we ask that you glorify your son's name in our hearts by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, I didn't choose this text for this moment because of any particular reason. We are continuing on in our sermon series in James, in case you were wondering (laughs) what happened to have that response. We are in the um, tail end of our James with God's uh, Friends with God series from James. We've got a few more weeks left of this before we start in Genesis. And at this point, James, this is the climax of the letter. This is the kind of high point. All of the, the tension has built up. All of the issues that James has been laying down for these churches in the dispersion are coming to a head here. It's kind of a serious moment. And up until now, seven different times in the letter, he's referred to the recipients as brothers or my dear brothers or my beloved brothers. And now he changes his tone and he says, you adulterous people. It's a serious moment for James. And he changes his tone to make his point very clear. The church is meant to be the community of God's people but it's full of quarreling and fighting. And if that's the case, then we've become friends with the world instead of friends with God. And that's a very serious indictment. So to understand what James is really getting at here, we need to kind of reorient our understanding of what friendship means. We all come with kind of preconceived ideas Um, based on our own friendships and experiences and the world that we grew up in. But for James and people in his day, friendship was taken more seriously than it is today. One scholar, Craig Blomberg, said that friendship was a lifelong pact between people with shared values and loyalties. A lifelong pact was how they viewed it. Think more Jonathan and David than, you know, buddies that you hung out with last week. The level of commitment and closeness implied by this kind of friendship that James is talking about went deeper than it does for most of us. And that's why James reaches for the language of adultery to describe it. In our English Bibles, it says, you adulterous people. 
Um, what lays under that in the original Greek is the feminine plural, you adulteresses. He calls them adulteresses instead of dear brothers. Because all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of God were calling the people of God to covenant faithfulness to God. Because our covenant with God is like a marriage. And God is the divine husband and we collectively are his bride. And so to give our loyalty, our allegiance, our committed love to anyone or anything else but God is tantamount to spiritual adultery. For example, in Ezekiel 16, this is one example of so many. The Lord says to the people of Jerusalem who had been following the way of the world instead of God's way, he says, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. So now we can begin to understand that friendship with the world has little or nothing to do with loving our neighbors or serving our community or enjoying Disney Plus or voting in government elections. Friendship with the world means to give the world our loyalty, our committed love that belongs only to God and to live in the world's way instead of God's way. So let's look again at verses one to two. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or pleasures are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So if you start to experience the loss of taste and smell, and you've got a cough and a, and a fever, these are the symptoms of COVID-19. And it's very likely that you have a virus. And if you start to see in a church context quarrels and fights, these are symptoms of allegiance to the world. And it's more deadly and more serious. The world's way, which demands our allegiance, the world's value system is simply what we talked about last week. It's the false wisdom from below. Remember, James says there's wisdom from above or from below. The wisdom from below is all about me. The wisdom from below makes me the center of my life. It makes my pleasure, my comfort, my happiness, the goal. It's what we live for. So are you suffering? Well, get out of suffering as quickly as you can. Then you can be happy. Are you poor? Pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. Get as much money as you can. That will solve your problems. Did a rich guy just walk into church? Well, let's schmooze him up. Lavish him with honor because maybe he'll spread some of that wealth around if we're really nice to him. Friendship with the world means living by their standards. And it results, like we learned last week, in disorder and every vile practice because nothing is off the table if we are the center of our lives. And especially in the church because our pleasures and passions are waging war for our souls it will result in quarrels and fights and churches will split. And brothers and sisters who are supposed to love and care for each other will be nothing but casualties of war. 
Let's look at the second half of verse two and verse three. James goes on, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions or pleasures. So the war of our desires demands that we fund its campaign of war. If we make ourselves and our pleasure the center of our life and the goal of our life, then why would we be surprised that God isn't answering our prayers? What we're asking him to do is fund our war. If we're going through a hard season financially and we're praying for more money so that we can be comfortable and live in luxury so we can buy our way out of our problems, why would God say yes to that? He's deeply generous. Don't mistake that. God gives generously to his children. He delights to give his children good gifts. But if we ask for poison, would he give it? Why would he give us what we want so we can keep worshiping our little idols while drifting comfortably away from the source of all life and goodness? And more likely than not, we don't even ask him because we know he's not interested in funding that war. He continues in verses four to five, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? In other words, James is saying, if you have the sort of committed love and loyalty to the world and the world's way, you are cheating on your real husband. You can't say, you cannot say, I'm pursuing a better marriage with my spouse while keeping a mistress on the side. That is not possible. That is a paradox. It's no marriage at all. Those things are binary realities. To be a friend with, world is, with the world is to be at enmity with God. Let me give a couple of examples from scripture then of what it looks like to be a friend of the world and then later a friend of God. So first, let's think about Solomon. Good old King Solomon from the Old Testament. Solomon um, knew the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He knew that by heart. He probably wrote a copy of it in his own personal law in the presence of the priests. And Solomon had received wisdom from above. You remember he, he had a prophetic dream of sorts. And God said, ask me anything you want. And he asked for wisdom and God gave it to him gladly. So Solomon received the wisdom from above, but did he love the Lord his God with his whole heart? And did he live out the wisdom from above? Let's look at 1 Kings 11 for a moment. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. I'll be reading the first four verses of 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely 
they will turn your turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon knew the Shema, but God did not have his whole heart. His foreign wives did. Solomon became a friend of the world by giving his loyalty and his committed love to the world. In a sense, he married the nations. And the inevitable result of giving that kind of friendship to the world is that you begin to receive their value system and live their way. For Solomon, that meant worshiping their gods. And frankly, that's the same thing for us. Our gods just aren't as obvious. They're not idols on the mantelpiece. So he didn't just marry Pharaoh's daughter, for instance. He did marry Pharaoh's daughter, but he actually began to act like he was the Pharaoh of Egypt. Later in this chapter, just to make his name great and seek his own pleasure, Solomon put the Israelites to force labor, just like Pharaoh had centuries before. He committed spiritual adultery. That's Solomon, a friend of the world. Conversely, let's think about who James names just a a chapter or so earlier as friend of God, and that's Abraham. So in Genesis 12, um, God came to this pagan Chaldean named Abram, living in Haran, not in Canaan, where the promised land would be. And God said this in, in Genesis 12, verse one. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, we've probably read that so many times that we just don't think that much about it. So reframe it in your mind as take all of the things you know and love best in your entire life. And then God says and comes to you and says, leave it all. Not one comfort to remain, not one familiarity. You can take your wife, you can take your nephew, It was a big thing that God asked of him. And Abram responds in verse four uh, with action. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot, which was his nephew with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So in Haran, Abram very likely had wealth and status and influence and comfort. I mean, the place that he was living in was named after his ancestors. So it's very likely that his family had tremendous wealth and influence among the Chaldeans. And God said, cut yourself off from all of that and follow me. Put your trust in me to lift you up. Trust me to make your name great. Trust me to be the source of all your life and goodness. And he did. Abram, who was later named Abraham, was a friend of God because he gave God all his allegiance and his committed love. He followed God's way instead of the world's way. He adopted God's values. That's why James said earlier, this is James 2, verses 22 to 23. James says, you see that faith was active along with his works. 
and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. What's the point of all this? If we allow our pleasures to rule our life, then we are receiving the wisdom from below, which is no wisdom at all. And the result will be catastrophic. In our souls and in this church, it will be chaos and war and casualties. But if we put all of our good squarely in the hands of God, if we look to God as the goal of our lives, as the source of our wisdom, if we locate all of our joy, all of our desire in God, we will be friends of God. And in, in the end, it all comes down to this word, exalt. James uses it in verse, uh, chapter four, verse 10, exalt, to lift up. And the question is, who do you trust to lift you up? We all want to be lifted up. We want to be exalted. God actually gave us that desire. The question is, will you exalt yourself? Will you build towers to make your name great? Or will you put your good in the hands of God Almighty? Humble yourself and let him exalt you. Imagine you can't swim. And then you and, and one other person maybe who can't swim, you're thrown into the deep end of a swimming pool. And you wanna stay above the water and not drown, right? But you can't reach the sides and you're floundering. You basically have two options. Option one is to push down the person next to you in the water to try to lift yourself up, right? Push him down and I might be able to get my head above water. Our option two is to float. Something like surrender. Trust something else to keep you above the water. Friends with the world push others down to lift ourselves up. It's inevitable. Every vile practice is the result of the wisdom from below. But if we will be friends with God, then it starts with the humility to entrust ourselves to him. Trust God to exalt us. Now, there's, there's more to this passage. We're not stopping here. We're gonna carry on for the next few verses as well in a moment. There's hope and goodness and joy and more than just severity. Thank God. But we are going to pause here and we're going to pray and let the Spirit search our hearts in the presence of God and confess whatever we need to, to Him. Um, privately, we'll have a moment of silence and you can confess whether it be self-reliance, self-exaltation, pride, or friendship with the world. And after a moment or two, then I will pray and we'll confess together in that way. This is the time for us to do business with the Lord and turn from pride to humility.
After I pray, Nate Young is gonna come back up and read the second scripture reading for us. And then we'll continue on with the last part of the sermon and then into communion. So let's have a, a moment now of silent confession and prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Nate, would you come do our next reading for us? Continuing on in James 4, starting in... Um, verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to, uh, yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we um, hear again from your word, we rest in the fact that you said, though you are high and lifted up, you dwell with the lowly and the contrite. We take you at your word. Give us now grace purchased for us by Christ through your spirit. Amen. So how does God treat friends of the world who humble themselves before him? He gives more grace. How does God behave toward those guilty of spiritual adultery when they return to their first love in humility? He gives more grace. Yeah. If we have confessed self-reliance, pride, self-exaltation, etc., God gives more grace. In other words, you can't outsin the grace of God.
He has more grace in him than you have sin in you. Praise God. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How could it be any other way? God opposes the proud. This is clear because if we exalt ourselves in pride, what we are saying to God is, no, thank you. I don't need Jesus. What is that but opposition to God? But he gives grace to the humble. I want to tell you one more story from the Old Testament. This one's from the book of Hosea. Now, the the prophets in the Old Testament were often called by God to physically kind of act out the message that God was giving them. And Hosea got a particularly difficult prophetic message. God told Hosea to marry a prostitute, a woman who would not be faithful to him. And Hosea obeyed and married this woman of ill repute, and her name was Gomer. And together, Gomer and Hosea had three children. And God told Hosea prophetically what to name each of them. And the first was named Jezreel. And there's an interesting reason for that that I don't have time to get into. Uh, But it's Jezreel. The second child was named No Mercy. And the third child was called Not My People. You imagine having a child and naming it Not My People or No Mercy. Each one of those names was an indictment from God against the people of Israel for their spiritual adultery. God told Hosea to marry Gomer because God was covenanted to his people who were as adulterous, if not more, as this woman was. So they were displaying that relationship. And poor Hosea's wife did, or well, poor Hosea, not the wife. um, She did not stop her adultery. But here's what the Lord said from Hosea chapter two, verse 14 through 23. And I'm gonna read this whole chunk. Listen for the tenderness. Listen for the notes of renewal, for the kindness and mercy of God. God says, in light of the continued adultery of his bride, Hosea 2.14, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety." And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. 
And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What is the heart of God toward his adulterous people? He gives more grace. He says, I will allure her. I will speak tenderly to her. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. God brings us into the wilderness of humility to speak tenderly to us and to win us over. And he does this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God moved toward us. He won us over at the cross. When you see Jesus die for the very people calling for his execution, out of nothing but love for them, when you apprehend the mercy of God in Christ, how Jesus did not exalt himself, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped after, Jesus entrusted all of his good to God. When we see that, when we get our minds and hearts around it, by his spirit, we begin to change from the inside out. Our hearts, which were divided, our pleasures and passions at war within us, our hearts begin to crack open to him. God wins our hearts by moving toward us first in grace. And it is this grace that compels our humility. All we have to do is stop fighting and trust him in humility. That's why James moves to the application after teaching us of God's grace to the humble. Verses 7 through 10. Let's look at that again. The, the, the teaching that James, the proposition that James has made is God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Now he moves into a section of application. What do we do about that? Starting in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's a lot there, but there are three promises from God that I want us to land on here. Promise number one. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You can only resist the devil, though, when you stop resisting God. Notice that that verse, this is verse 7, begins with submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and follows with resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You can resist the devil when you stop resisting God. So when you lower your defenses against God and take up the defense against the devil, something incredible happens, which is the devil flees from you. <laughs> so what, I mean, what temptation can't we overcome? What trial can we endure through with Christ on our side and the devil fleeing from us? God's promises are like checks and they're meant to be taken to the bank. This is a check you can cash. He wants us to. God has our back. A friend of God is a fearsome thing because he has the mightiest friend in the universe. He's the guy you don't want to mess with. That's promise number one. 
Promise number two, draw near to God, verse eight, and he will draw near to you. You can put this one in the back of your mind and chew on it for weeks and just live off of this for a while. It's an incredible reality. Draw near to God and he, creator of the universe, God almighty, king of all, will draw near to you, to me. If we hesitate to draw near to God, which we generally do, that hesitation probably comes from the same place that our reluctance to intimacy comes from. We all at times experience reluctance to draw near to another human. And the reason for that is usually fear of rejection. It's vulnerable to draw near to somebody, isn't it? Because what if they turn you down? What if they move away from you instead of toward you? That's a humiliating place to be. I remember many years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in Portland, Oregon, and uh, there was a, it was a kind of a small crowd and there was a, a lunch break, like a two hour, you know, big lunch break. And everyone's kind of milling about and the kind of headline speaker was just hanging out by the stage and um, didn't look terribly busy. And so I and a couple of friends uh, that I was at the conference went with, we walked up to this uh, famous speaker and said, hey, you know, we've really enjoyed the session. Do you want to come grab lunch with us real quick? And he looked us up and down and said, no, it was so embarrassing. But God will never look you up and down and scoff at you. God will never turn you away when you draw near to him. If you move near to him, he will move nearer still to you. It's a promise. So, if God feels distant to you, if it feels, I don't know, opaque, your faith, hard to get your mind around, hard to feel real, the path forward is humbling yourself and then taking a step toward him. And then another, and then another. But God, when you start stepping toward God, God doesn't just stand there still, waiting for you to approach him humbly while he just stands there. That's not what he does. With every step, he steps toward us. He's moving toward us, which means he's drawing exponentially nearer as we get closer to him. He will never reject, shame, or humiliate the humble. You can take him up on that. And that leads to the third promise the last one from verse 10, humble yourselves therefore before the Lord and he will exalt you. The Tower of Babel was a structure of pride. Genesis 11, 10, 11, Genesis. <laughs> I'm supposed to know that. <laughs> it was a structure. The whole point of it was to make a name for themselves. Come now, let us burn these bricks and build up this structure that we might make a name for ourselves. God laid that building project low and scattered them. Conversely, Abraham was a man of humility and God said to Abraham, I will make your name great. In the next chapter, 
Those are put side by side in Genesis for a reason. To contrast pride and humility and to teach us what the Bible spends the whole rest of the Bible convincing us that God is the lifter of the lowly. You don't have to be afraid to be vulnerable and humble before God. When we confess our sins to Jesus, he doesn't rub our face in our failure. He doesn't bring it back up again to make you feel small. He frees you, he forgives you, and he dignifies you. Reminded of the hymn, Rock of Ages, my favorite line, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. We come to him in shame and he clothes us. We come to Jesus helpless and he strengthens us. We come to him dirty and foul and he cleanses us. And Jesus, our crucified and risen savior is both the proof and the experience or the reality of that truth. Here's what I mean. When Jesus paid for our sins and hung on that cross, naked, helpless, and dirty with the sin of the world on his shoulders, God was faithful to raise him up. He didn't entrust his good to himself. He didn't self-exalt. He trusted God and God exalted him in resurrection and gave him the name that is above every name. So Jesus is all the proof that we need, that we can actually trust God to lift the lowly. We've seen him do it. And no one went lower than Jesus. But secondly, Jesus is our experience or our reality of that in a different way. In other words, he's not just an example for us to look back at. He's something to participate in. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted at the right hand of majesty on high, he sent his Holy Spirit to live in all who humble themselves before the Lord in faith. And that spirit of God unites us to Jesus himself. So when we humble ourselves before the Lord, we will find that we are not just looking back, not merely looking back at Jesus as an example, but we are already seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ because we are one flesh with him. Like a bride and a bridegroom, we have been united to Christ. Therefore, in Christ, you can be certain that you already are clothed in dignity, that you already are strengthened by grace, that you already are cleansed from your sins. And it's to us, we who humble ourselves to follow Jesus, that Jesus himself said this in John 15, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. Jesus laid down his life for you. He didn't seek to lift himself up. He sought to lift you up and give you life. 
And now when we come to him then with heads bowed in humble confession, he cleanses us from all our sins, 1 John 1, 7. He tenderly lifts our head to look us in the eye and call you friend. What could be better than that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for your ridiculous kindness to us, that you have taken the initiative to move toward us, that you have sought us out when we were filthy, unlovable, unlovely, dead in our trespasses and sins. Like the child lying on the side of the road in Ezekiel 16. And you gently washed us, showered us with love and kindness, treated us like a child of God. We trust you with our sins because where else can we take them? We can't pay for them. We thank you for your atoning work on the cross. And we trust you with our holiness and our love as we grow in grace by the power of your spirit, receiving more and more generosity from the Father who gives to all generously without reproach. So we put ourselves gladly in your hands as we move toward taking your supper now we remember that this isn't our table, it's your table, that this isn't something we do for you, it's something you do for us. And we humble ourselves in this way now and ask you to bless our time. Amen.